Hi, this is Jay Familietti, Earth System Science Professor at UC Irvine. When I'm not busy trying to save the planet, I listen to KUCA 88.9 FM in Irvine. Can somebody get me a bottle of water, please? What are you doing drinking bottled water? <laughs> get that bottle of water off the table. The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. Hello, hello. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am DJ Broca, welcoming you to Pills, Easy to Swallow Stories in Medicine. I am very excited because this is the first time this quarter that we have a guest on the program, and uh, I'm expecting to learn a lot and really hear about a very um, interesting perspective and a very different perspective on medicine. So welcoming to the program today is Ben. Libro? Mm-hmm, correct. Thanks, Drew. We're glad to be here. Welcome. Um, so tell me, Ben, you are the founder of Floating Doctors. Is that right? Uh, you always would say that everything that happens is ultimately both either my responsibility or my fault. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm the founder of the Floating Doctors. Said like a true founder. <laughs> So, uh, so tell me a little bit about your organization, Ben. Um, our organization is a nonprofit medical team that specializes in delivering uh, healthcare and community development services uh, to communities that essentially have no access and are particularly difficult to reach. Since 2010, we've treated about 70,000 patients. Uh, we run clinics all year long. Uh, our first mission was in Haiti, 2010, right after the earthquake. We figured we'd start out with something something easy <laughs> for our first time out. Uh, after a few months there, we worked in Honduras for uh, just under a year. Uh, went back to Haiti during the cholera epidemic, which was pretty interesting. Uh, and we've been in Panama since 2011. Uh, we're kind of in the final stages of setting, up, putting the finishing touches on our remote rural healthcare service that covers a 10,000 square mile area of jungle and mangrove mazes and mountains and uh, provides health care for about 10,000 people a year in uh, small indigenous villages scattered across the region. Incredible. So are, have you stayed in the countries that you started off with historically, like Haiti and whatnot, or have you kind of transitioned? Well, our original plan was actually to do more, we call like STMMs, short-term medical missions, to visit many different locations for a very short amount of time and do kind of one-off missions. We made a special uh, a special exception for Haiti because they just had the earthquake. We decided we'd stay longer. Mm-hmm. And we realized uh, really after our first week that, you know, it, you can actually accomplish quite a bit um, in a single visit if you plan appropriately. But what you can accomplish in one day or one week compared to something that's regular or recurring or something that's actually ongoing um, is just you know pitifully small. 
So, right. yeah, we had commitments in Honduras uh, and in Haiti. And while we were in Honduras, right before we left for the cholera epidemic, we actually got invited to come to Panama. So, mm-hmm. but we got to Panama and decided, well, this region is going to get there first. This is the first region that's going to get a permanent floating doctor's installation. Okay. Um, and we've been working to set that up for a few years now. Uh, I said putting the finishing touches on it and we'll have a very I think a pretty novel and very effective model that we'll be able to duplicate and modify for other locations I think Haiti would probably be next for our for our return expanding into that Mm -hmm. yeah so you talked about a unique model and uh, I've heard a little bit about it and it's um, it's fascinating can you can you first begin with what is the challenge of providing healthcare in these regions well people often complain about like poor access to care to healthcare in the U.S. Um, sometimes they'll say, well, why aren't you doing what you're doing here in the U.S.? And I, I really have a twofold answer. Uh, one is, uh, first of all, like poor healthcare access in the U.S. is not the same as poor healthcare access elsewhere in the world. Mm. You know, for poor healthcare access in the U.S., for example, in a rural area might mean that mm-hmm. it, you have to travel maybe a couple of hours to get to somewhere where a particular specialist may be found. The provision of you know, adequate rural healthcare in the U.S. is actually it has it, you know is the same kind of challenge that we face, except what we face is several orders of magnitude greater. For mm-hmm. the most part, you know, like our patients, if they have poor access, it means because they're completely impoverished and have to cross three rivers in a region that where it rains 220 inches a year just to get to a road where they can get to a bus where they might be able to get to a town where a doctor may see them and may or may not provide uh, any kind of health care whatsoever. Mm. Um, for most of our patients, uh, they, if they get sick or injured, they either get better or or not. You know, like mm-hmm. there's, they look after it at home with not much except hope, really, that it will right. actually get better. Um, so... That's really, those are the populations that we really wanted to be able to reach. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, actually, on the, uh, if you're driving south, I think on the 405, um, further south, there's a CB training facility down near Camp Pendleton. The CBs, um, this CB training facility uh, um, is specialized in landing on coasts um, and being able to deliver like heavy equipment and machinery and build infrastructure. That's, uh-huh. This is their training facility. And their motto is no beach out of reach. Oh, cool. um, and I, every driving by, I always think about that because usually, like where we go, there's no port, you know, there's no mm-hmm. dock. Like we, there's no infrastructure. Right, for there's just nothing. To land. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like our mountain communities, we first travel by dugout canoe, then we travel by kind of mini bus or bus, and then we load up pack horses uh, and go on foot. You know, mm-hmm. as like crossing rivers, uh, going through the jungle up into the mountains, mm-hmm. and the same for the coastal communities. You know, we're going to. You know, out in open water, sometimes we're turned back. You know, sometimes there's lightning striking around. I mean, it's really you know you're you're working without the safety net. You know, and right. it gives you a very visceral understanding of what poor access to care actually means for the vast majority of the world's population. Mm-hmm. So we run uh, clinics pretty much every week. We would send a large team of between 18 and 30 people: doctors, mm-hmm. medical students, nurses, uh, dentists, health educators. Uh, We'll send them out to one of the communities. They'll set up clinic, do clinic for the day, treat 80, 100, 150 people, and then come back. And we visit all of the communities in our network every three months so we can actually provide ongoing care. And that's really one of the things that is somewhat unique about our organization. There are a lot of medical missions that go somewhere every year Mm -hmm. or once or twice a year um, or are fixed in one location. Right. Um, But there there are very few, if any, that provide ongoing primary care, um, kind of like we do, 
to such a large area, especially to such an area that, you know, like, I mean, many of the communities in our network, when we first went to them, people were like, oh, this is my first time ever seeing a doctor. Wow, so, in their life. In their life. Wow. Um, so it was actually in some ways really exciting because you knew that you got to be, you know, the, there was the thrill of first contact. Right. Right. And because first contacts can be so delicate, you know, what, whatever the type of contact it is, mm-hmm. you know, it's always nice to try and make a favorable first impression, as it were. Of course, yeah. And uh, for people to have their first experience with healthcare be a positive one, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to feel cared for, to feel that they got good care, to feel that the doctor actually cared whether they got better or not. Um, these are things that were fairly foreign to our patient population. You know, even if they did go to get healthcare, they have the belief that for the most part, you know, the healthcare service is not that interested in helping them. Oh, uh, okay. And that's that belief is not without so, you know some justification. Mm-hmm. It's by no means universal. You know, mm-hmm. like there's quite a few Panamanian physicians who are not only incredibly skilled, but will Care really go deeply yeah. about their patients. Mm-hmm. But it's just so difficult. You know, by the time the patients do get somewhere, quite frequently their condition is very advanced because mm-hmm. they've waited and waited and waited because it might cost two months you know of their family's budget just to get to hospital right yeah and of course they get there they're super advanced there's nothing that can be done except that they may die in hospital right so that kind of thing fosters that kind of belief that being said like they do you know the same kinds of horror stories that i actually hear here in the u.s about people's experience frustrating experiences with healthcare, mm-hmm. i hear there yeah but frequently they're you know the kinds of things that can occur when a people have no recourse. You know, here you can make a complaint, you can hire, there's malpractice attorneys. Sure, yeah. There, you know, like, oh, they could have their solicitor submit, you know, like a complaint to them. But as, from a practical point of view, they have no recourse whatsoever and that makes them fairly vulnerable. Right. So those are our patients and we do, I mean, we see everything. You know, we focus on preventative health when we can. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a lot of prenatal care. Um, and then we do... Our position gives us a unique opportunity to do community development, you know, because mm-hmm. they have this kind of antagonistic relationship with outside groups because they keep getting screwed over and over and over again pretty mm-hmm. much for the last 400 years. Outside of their uh, community itself? Uh, well, I guess outside of, their eth- outside of their ethnic group, like the oh, indigenous okay. the indigenous culture mm-hmm. with whom we work, uh, mm-hmm. which they actually met Columbus on his fourth voyage. Uh, he oh, was the okay. first to actually meet them. Mm-hmm. But pretty much since then, a lot of their interactions with outside groups have not been great. Uh-huh. You know, like, uh, so when we go on overnight clinics, mm-hmm. Um, especially to some of the more remote communities. The very first time, we always face questions about, well, are you guys with some kind of mining concern or hydroelectric right. project? What what's your case in Nuestro Rio? In Nuestro Tierra? We're yeah. like, listen, you know, we're not a political group. We're not mm-hmm. a religious group. We'll work with political or religious groups, uh, but our, we are just a group mm-hmm. that is just here to help with do healthcare, to help community development, to do education. And after five or six visits, when they realize that, you know, like it's, it gives you a huge amount of effectiveness in mm-hmm. actually embarking mm-hmm. on, you know, like long-term community interventions, which can help kind of, ad- you know, address some of the root causes of issues in that community. But really, like, it's really watching our volunteers set up their hammocks. Right, I think right. uh, that you know, re- reassures people that there's no engineers. You know, yeah, like, you I'm know, here like, to stay. Right? Uh, they, yeah. you know, they always say, well, no engineers here. You're watching them fumble <laughs> with them. You know. They're not. They're not with the not with the mining concern. Don't worry, Clearly guys. Don't worry. Uh-huh. Watching them handle the hammock, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Well, that's uh, that's amazing because even here, if you have if you go to a family medicine practitioner, they would tell you come back in three months. So you're essentially being able to you know replicate that, I guess. Yeah, like uh, three months is like a good amount of time for managing diabetes, mm-hmm. hy- you know, hypertension, uh, and also pregnancy. You know, we have 
We've got about 400 women on Depo-Provera contraceptive injection. The Nobe mm-hmm. population has gone from like 145,000 to 195,000 in five years. Mm-hmm. It's exploding. Um, and it's great because the reason it's exploding is because the kids are living because mm-hmm. they started getting vaccines out like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. The downside is they're still getting pregnant eight, mm-hmm. nine, 10, 12 times starting uh, very yeah. young. Right. But now they're all, like, all the kids are living because they've got vaccines out. Yeah. And no family planning, like, whatsoever. It's right. like the law of unintended consequences. Yeah, which a lot of countries have been going through as mm-hmm. well, right? And what it means is, you know, like, if you have, you know, 200 people in a community and all the homes are 200 or 300 meters apart and it's in the jungle, who cares if they just have pit latrines? Uh, you know, the jungle is absorbing that waste so quickly. But, you know, suddenly that population has doubled and now the houses are right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Now the, there's so many latrines that... You know, if it rains, they overflow and you get sewage. Come, you know, like, you know, this real tipping point occurs. Even the schools in the communities are so overcrowded. The solution was not to build more schools because it's all happened so fast. It's to cut the school day in half. So half the kids go to school in like around the morning and half go in the afternoon. So they're mm-hmm. getting half the education that they were already getting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this year, family planning is a huge push for us. We're trying to get support for a Nexplanon uh, or Implanon implant project um, since three years would be a lot you know, would be preferable to having to get to these women every three months. It's very mm-hmm. difficult because if they, if we you know, are late or if they're away mm-hmm. the day that we happen to be there, we're not going to be back for three months and they can, they might miss their injection. Right. So, well, th- so this is an interesting point because it seems like, as you said, there are these cultural barriers. Like when you first arrive there, they, they don't necessarily trust you immediately. And I think when it comes to family planning or contraception, even in a country like this, there's a lot of, you know, you know, butting heads about, you know, cultural values or whatnot. Do you find that that's the case there or do are people very enthusiastic to, you know, you know? we did a, we did a really exhaustive uh, family planning needs assessment. We had a public health researcher from uh, Harvard come down and there, some pretty surprising things came up. First of all, it turned out that as a cultural group, they're actually fairly desperate for it. Okay. You know, uh, and it was actually the grandmothers mm-hmm. who wanted it the most for their kids. I, you know, I would have thought of them as maybe being a little more conservative, but right. what happened was they're the ones on whom both the financial and the time burden of helping look after their daughter's children is really falling. Okay. Um, as the, as the, the husbands are having to spend more and more time away or mm-hmm. going to Panama City to work and then not always sending money, but, you know, all these kinds of things. Right. I mean, the grandmothers were like, airdrop it if you can. <laughs> like they really okay. wanted it. Yeah. So it is interesting because in a couple communities that were a little more traditional, at first we had to actually do it secretly. Like we would have, we would spread the word among the women, you know, to mm-hmm. put their names on a secret list at the local shop, you know, that the woman uh, would have and that she would tell us how many to bring. And then, we, you know, they would come for a health check, the next clinic, mm-hmm. we would do it. In some of those same communities, now the women just roll up their sleeve. You oh, know, so, interesting. Because they know and it's Yeah, it's become accepted. much more accepted. So it's mm-hmm. been pretty interesting to watch, again, like the, the health culture changing yeah. as well as more kind of knowledge and understanding kind of of you know, disease and disease prevention and treatment and things like that become more prevalent. Mm-hmm, you know, so, mm-hmm. Well, it's fantastic that you're able to not just do acute care, which of course, you know, that's what you kind of imagine, right? In your head, you have, you know, an underserved community, but um, also go into primary care and things that will, you know, avoid, you know, suffering or whatnot in the future. To sure. Come. I mean, if we can get a woman onto her prenatal vitamins throughout her whole pregnancy, and as a consequence, she does not have a child that mm-hmm. has multiple birth defects and Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's a much bigger victory than when we encounter them afterwards. And then treat. And have to, treat. you know, you're, then you're doing damage control. 
Right, right. So that's our, our position is kind of unique because they really, there are not many, you know, um, outsiders that they feel can be trusted kind mm-hmm. of implicitly. Um, but if we impart information, their assumption is that we don't have an, an ulterior motive for imparting it, mm-hmm. which is true. You know, like their assumption is that we're providing information for them, mm-hmm. you know, and as a consequence, if our position kind of lets us know, huh, in this community, tuberculosis is the big problem. Mm-hmm. In this community of equal size and that looks identical, there's no tuberculosis, but diarrheal disease is super common. Mm-hmm. But after four or five years, it really gives you a nice you, both your data and your anecdotal observations really allow you to both determine, okay, this community, this is the priority, this community, this is the priority, and a project that would address that in each community, excuse me, is this, and these right. are the people in each community with whom we would work to implement it, and so on and so on. Yeah. So, I mean, we, this last two or three weeks, we put in a 15,000-gallon water bladder on the community aqueduct for one of the communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're... We partnered with another organization to put up a birthing center in a community where a lot of people come to give births because mm-hmm. there were community midwives there. We're putting up a library and you know, and so on mm-hmm. and so on. So, well, that sounds really good because you're looking into what the unique community needs are for each case. Um, it reminds me of um, people have criticized, for example, um, I don't know if you've heard this case, but um, there was a group that wanted to install these. Um, um, what was it? It was like a wheel that the children could kind of spin to get water out of the ground. So mm, okay. it, it served as both like a play, like toy, as well as like a way to you know get this resource that mm-hmm. people otherwise would have had to pump really hard. But it was criticized because you know these engineers come in and set it up. It was somewhere in Africa, and um, after a couple of years, they realized that despite all this funding and all this like. Um, you know, hype over the, how this was going to be amazing. People found out, you know, it was too hard to move and it turned out that, yep. you know, <laughs> the moms were really doing it anyways and it was harder than the old method they had and no one was taking care of it even, you know. That's very, very, very common. Um, we really, we were exposed to that in sort of a shocking way in Haiti during our, mm. you know, because Haiti is like the showcase for failed or well-meant but poorly thought out or inappropriate or you know, fraudulent, quite frankly, Hmm. kind of interventions. And, uh, you know, you really, you know, like implementing a project, you know, that you really want to actually be, to have impact for more than the time that you're on the ground with it is a huge challenge. And it really requires, um, it really requires ongoing partnerships Hmm. with local communities, Mm -hmm. local government agencies, other NGOs working like you, there has to be some kind of, ongoing commitment to it if you wanted right. to really have a hope of and you need this feedback that's constantly coming mm-hmm. in i suppose right there's about 30 peace corps workers in our region mm-hmm. um who are fairly important resources for us because they live out in a lot of our target communities mm-hmm. and uh, i meet them all in their first month or two on site i'm like so how's it going and they go it's awesome we're gonna do an aqueduct and we're gonna start a school <laughs> and we're gonna teach. i'm like all right good good okay <laughs> then i see them like four right. months later five months later and i'm like so how's it going and they're like yeah. good okay so we're gonna do an aqueduct and this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to start in like three months. You know, it takes them like six months right. of living in the community. To, to realize just, what they... Right. And also to engage who they're going to be working with really and mm-hmm. to figure out what is really the best way to do this. Mm-hmm. And then it takes them like a year to do it. Right. And then they've really got to be there to help chaperone it for another year. Yeah. Through a full turn of the seasons, I always say, like, you know, for flooding, all this stuff. Right. And that whole time they've got to be 
help essentially it has to be managed by the people who are going to be managing it mm-hmm. after the Peace Corps worker is gone. Mm-hmm. But it really takes a big time commitment and most organizations have a much more temporary mm-hmm. kind of visitation. So right. for that, it helps to just partner with something that's lo- you know, long-term or permanent long-term, there. Yeah. How do you, um, and I guess this is another thing that um, many people talk about in this kind of um, global missions. Um, how do you avoid um, being kind of paternalistic about uh, the work that you're doing, right? In the sense of, is there, do, do you find it important to empower the people there to be able to provide this service for themselves oh, in yeah. some sort of way? And like, how do you uh, go about doing that? Like, it is useful to go and like put in stitches when people cut themselves because like people cut themselves. Here, if someone mm-hmm. cuts themselves, they go to the hospital and a doctor puts they in stitches. They do rely on somebody else. Uh, so yep. it's not a question of like, trying to treat train people to do the stuff that a doctor would do here for okay. people mm-hmm. but there's so much that people can do regular kind of lay people can do and also that whatever local health professionals may be there a community health worker mm-hmm. for which we have a new training course uh, in development now um, community midwives parteras mm-hmm. um, curanderos the botanic medical practitioners the mm-hmm. shamans uh, you know these are all like really high potential you know kind of right. high potential high impact people because they're with the which ones who stay right like yeah when saying. we're not there it's their, right. their, their patients so mm-hmm. um, we as you know essentially just afford all of those people professional respect and we try and engage them to work with us you know okay. thereby any training or resources or knowledge we can impart to them augments what they're already doing and of course on successive visits you do a little more and a little more and a little mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. Um, and also with local health services it's really you know you just have to remember you know, people have them, they, they have, well, the way we would do this in the States is, right. And that's just like suicide, you know, like, uh, for your, you know, for your organization. Right. You, you know, have you, to take the local context. Oh yeah. Time. And like, you know, you have to remember if a, if a health ministry says, yes, you may help. Mm-hmm. Th- what that really is, is an admission that what they're doing is not enough. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes to admit failure, least of all, like healthcare services. Um, so you know, like I often, I get around that by when I encounter healthcare services, especially in Latin America, where, mm-hmm. you know, like pride may sometimes be a little more tender. <coughs> um, I would uh, say, like, listen, nobody understands better than I how difficult your job is. You've been asked to provide adequate healthcare for a remote rural population that it is elusive, that is impoverished and with low health knowledge, spread out over a 10,000 square mile area of jungle, and you're asked to do it with a limited budget. You know, like I, we're not here to replace what you're doing. Mm-hmm. We're here to help reduce the workload that I know you guys are under, meaning we take care of a lot of stuff on site that if it's not taken care of becomes big and ultimately presents to hospital in an advanced state. Right. Um, like, you know, so, I mean, we're you're not taking... contributing your unique, you know skill and expertise that you have sure and for example uh actually when you came to get me outside i was messaging with uh, one of my lead medical providers who's just Mm -hmm. come back from one of the communities where there is actually a doctor (coughs) um a local nobe kind of panamanian doctor with whom we've worked for a long time Mm -hmm. and he was saying hey when are the when are the ultrasound because he you know he's worked with our people before um, mm-hmm. in previous summers he said when is the when are the ultrasound people coming <laughs> because he would like me to send some of the in, some of the UCI students out to his remote spot right. to spend a week or so doing an ultrasound clinics for cool. all their prenatal and stuff like mm-hmm. and also more importantly to train you know, um, his physicians in the use of diagnostic ultrasound mm-hmm. and okay. this is always you know something that our UCI students are working toward every year they they handle a lot of our ultrasound needs which is great because they get a lot of training mm-hmm. but they also every year 
continue to ed- expand on and advance on what the previous years have developed, which is inching towards a practical and effective kind of ultrasound training curriculum mm. for a community parterre or midwife or mm. a Red Cross worker or a Panamanian doctor, you know, a more basic kind of general practice level ultrasound curriculum that mm-hmm. would allow people to become at least proficient at like with a uh, prenatal the which basic. way is it pointing is there a malformation in the head uh, is the heartbeat okay you know all right. of these you right. know is there a placenta previa you know just some of these four or five basic things that yeah. really can be taught in short order mm-hmm. so that's something this summer I'm really excited about because the UCI students are going to be down with us at the same time that our Peace Corps partners are mid-development of our community health worker training course. And I'm really hoping that this summer, the UCI group will, yeah, they'll work together to help develop that module for our training course. Wonderful. So um, you mentioned how the UCI um, students fill a unique void um, or unique, um, contributed a unique uh, expertise. Who else is involved with uh, the organization? And where, uh, where, where do you guys need help, I guess? um, I mean, really... We always pride ourselves on saying that, you know, any background or skill or talent can be expressed in a way that is a service. You know, a documentarian might come down and capture some imagery for us, which we use to gain support, or they might tell a particular patient's story and it encourages people to come and work with us. You know, like there's literally no specialty, you know, or kind of career that we have, even like, you know, law, business, everything. We, you know, we always find a way to express that in a service capacity. Where we especially really need help always are more providers and more Spanish speakers. You know, we try very hard mm-hmm. to make sure we have like half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is always a struggle to try and make sure we have adequate Spanish speakers to handle all of our translation needs. Um, so mm-hmm. even if people don't have any other particular skill, but they are bilingual, then mm-hmm. essentially that puts them right in the heart of every consult. You know, like, mm-hmm. so the experience is kind of exciting. And like all age groups, uh, we sometimes have, you know, kids who've come with their parents and we've had, you know, like older kind of retired folks, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, especially older retired docs, especially ones who've retired early because they may have experienced frustration with the way medicine is practiced now, especially older mm-hmm. primary care doctors who miss going on house calls. Mm. who miss, you know, like being told like, oh, how much time do you have to spend with each patient? As long as you want, you know, Mm -hmm, like uh, mm -hmm. who miss like if a patient has something, taking care of it right there on the spot instead of referring it out or sending it to a specialist, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, we see everything and our doctors really handle a wide variety of things, even, you know, kind of basic surgeries uh, we'll do under local out in the field. Mm Um, so even, you know, we amputated, you know, this one kid's toe on the top of a mountain because he chopped it with a machete and it could not be saved. So we see some pretty interesting things. Yeah. Um, so volunteers and especially people who speak Spanish, uh, and through our website, floatingdoctors.com, people can click on the volunteer tab and fill out the application to volunteer and come on down. Otherwise, uh, kind of funding is always critical for us. Uh, our, almost all of our operational costs, which is great, are covered by our volunteers contributions, which means that donations all can go toward development and development projects, which is really nice. So again, on our website, people can click to donate and even just, you know, giving even $5 a month, like giving up one Starbucks per month, you know, essentially, I mean, that gives prenatal vitamins to a woman for three months. So if someone's willing to give up one cup of coffee for a month, you know, then, you know, they can actually change someone's life thousands of miles away uh, in ways that, you know, you can't even measure. 
Wonderful. That website, one more time? It's uh, www.floatingdoctors.com. Um, our website's about to undergo a major revision with some new content, but I strongly encourage people to like us on Facebook, which is where we post most of our con- uh, most of our fresh content and uh, on Instagram as well, just Floating Doctors. And we've got about 30 or 40 videos on our YouTube channel, also not surprisingly called Floating Doctors. And uh, yeah, everyone, we welcome everyone to come take a look. And also, if it seems like something they'd love to do, uh, go on our website, apply to volunteer, and come on down. Wonderful. We'll put some of those links up on the show blog as well, which is pillsonkuci.wordpress.com. Thank you so much, Ben, for Not stopping by this. Thanks studio. so much for having me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the UCI group again this year. Every every year, it's been such a solid and dependable and uh, hardworking group. Uh, And it's wonderful to have our ultrasound needs so covered for the entire summer. Wonderful. Looking forward to hearing about, you know, where Floating Doctors goes coming in the future. All right. Thanks so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This was Pills, Easy to Swallow Stories in Medicine. I was DJ Broca, your host. Tune in again next week, Tuesdays at 4 for this uh, show where you can hear all sorts of uh, new stories in medicine, ranging from global health missions, as in this case, to new advances in technology. We will have a couple more guests coming up in the next couple weeks, and it should be very, very interesting. Till then, take care. Hi, this is Jay Familietti, Earth.